Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. If you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Malachi. And Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament. So if you find the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, and just go back a few pages, you'll come to Malachi. We're going to be in chapter 3. One of the things we do when we gather together as God's people is we hear from him, and that means hearing from his word, the Bible. And that's a wonderful gift that God's given us. The particular passage we're going to look at this morning in Malachi, it would be helpful if I gave us a little bit of context. You know, the Jewish people date their beginnings from the time of Abraham. God called Abraham, and we read about that in the book of Genesis, and he brought together his people. He gathered them as they grew. They went through an exodus from Egypt after growing there, and they came into the promised land. And God was establishing his kingdom with the people of Israel. And they had some glory days especially under King David and King Solomon. And the kingdom of Israel became a very mighty spiritual and political force in that part of the world. But you may be aware, if you've read the Old Testament, that the people of Israel always had a problem with idolatry. And God kept warning them through the prophets to call them back to the covenant faithfulness that they had with him at the beginning. But the people continued to disobey and God had promised them and warned them that problems would occur if they didn't repent. And the ultimate penalty came upon them when after centuries of being warned by the prophets, they continued to fall into idolatry. And then the Assyrians came and overran them, Israel in the north, and the Babylonians came and overran them in the south. People were carried away captive. They went into exile. But God was faithful after 70 years of exile to bring them back to the land. And so at the end of the Old Testament, you have what are called the post-exilic prophets. And Malachi is one of those post-exilic prophets, one of the prophets that spoke to Israel post or after the exile, after they had come back into the land of Israel. But now the glory days are long past and Israel is really a tiny little geographical territory, 20 by 30 miles. I don't think it was probably much bigger than the county of Frederick or Montgomery County. And not only that, but the people felt the pain of their previous failings. And even though God had brought them back into the land, they felt insignificant, discouraged. They really weren't doing very well at all in many ways. And perhaps the greatest of the problems was that they were half-hearted in their worship. They had been negligent in their worship. And so God sent the prophet Malachi to encourage them through reproof. 
And if you've read the book of Malachi, you, you know that it's interesting because in terms of its literary features, it's, it's a bunch of arguments, uh, disputations, back and forth between God and the people. And that's what we're going to find here in the passage that we're going to read. God is going to have a little argument with his people. And uh, perhaps like a rebellious teenager, they're going to give God some backtalk. Okay, so that's a little bit of context. And now I'd like to read to you from Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So this is one of a number of passages in Malachi that presents us with an argument that God's having with his people, another disputation. Does God really get in arguments with us? Well, it's probably more accurate to say we get into arguments with him because God here is really reasoning with his people. He is eminently reasonable. Our God is rational and reasonable. He's actually supra-rational. It goes beyond that. He's miraculous. But God does engage us at the standpoint of reason on that Level In a very famous passage in Isaiah chapter 1, God says to his people, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be like wool. So God in Isaiah says, Come and let us reason. Let's have a chat about this. Well, what we just read, though, is a rebuke but it's an overwhelmingly gracious rebuke. It's a reprimand, but it's an amazingly merciful and loving reprimand. God, you see, speaks to them like this because he loves them. He's talking to them for their good. And what he has to say to them, he also has to say to us for our good. This represents the kindness of God. Paul said, that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And he may have had this passage in mind when he said that. The job of the prophet, as God's spokesman, was to call his wayward people back 
to himself. Because prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it for thy courts above. Just as the hymn writer was saying, this is characteristic of us. If left to ourselves, we tend to wander away. That's why God calls us sheep. They are prone to wander. Now, this is, as I said, not unlike a conversation that a parent might have with a teenager. And when I say that, I don't know if there are any teenagers here listening, but believe it or not, once upon a time, I was a teenager. And uh, I remember the time my father was working on the car in the driveway out front, and he said to me, I was supposedly helping him, he said, go down the basement and get me the half-inch socket. It's right there on the workbench. So I went down into the basement to the workbench, looked around for a little while, came back and said, it's not there. He said, it's right in the middle of the workbench. Look again. So I went back down, looked around for a little while, came back up. It's not there. Good grief, Robin, my father said, or words to that effect that I can't repeat. Now, I have to explain, my father was an amputee. He lost his leg in World War II, and he had a wooden leg, and it wasn't easy for him to get around, but he pulled himself out from under the car, walked all the way around to the back of the house, went downstairs into the basement, over to the workbench, and wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, there appeared for the very first time the half-inch socket. Or so it seemed to me. Now, one day I would actually graduate from college and hold a job. But at this point, I would have to say my prospects did not look good. Was I stupid? Well, somewhat. But the deeper problem was that I was rebellious. Now, it was not an in-your-face Rebellion. It was a soft rebellion. The reason I couldn't see the half-inch socket was I really wasn't interested in looking that hard for it. Because it wasn't what I wanted to do. Because I was the king of my own kingdom, although I didn't represent myself as a king. And because I had that attitude, I got in arguments with my father. And daggone it, the guy always turned out to be right. I hated that about him. He used to infuriate me. But the reason I got into those arguments was because I really didn't appreciate his authority or the fact that he was trying to do me good. It didn't really occur to me. And by the way, let me say something to you as a father and a grandfather on behalf of parents and grandparents, nobody cares more about you teenagers than your mom and your dad, even though sometimes you might not think so. Nobody care, they care so much more about you than your friends do. You think your friends are just so important, and they are. But, you know, 10 years from now, you probably won't even remember their names. Uh, but mom and dad, yeah, they're still going to be around. Well, anyway, the covenant people of God here in Malachi are like I was. They're like teenagers. And like I did, I like to argue with my dad, give him back talk. And in that, I was foolish and rebellion. But God 
loves us so much that he does get in arguments with us. God did get in an argument with the people through the prophet Malachi. And the argument here is over money. Money. So really that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about money. Arguments about money, by the way, can be very, very unpleasant. But anyway, the passage that we have here follows a certain structure that all of the disputations follow in Malachi. We have the introduction of a problem, and that problem is described in the course of the argument. And then there's also a solution that's presented, and then there is a result. So first of all, what's the problem? It's stated in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. From the days of your fathers. In other words, from the very beginning, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. You've turned aside, you've turned away, you've wandered away, you've swerved from the faith. Same problem you see in 1 Timothy. Many people swerve from the faith. This is New Testament people. Church members swerve from the faith. Covenant breakers. But not God. He's not a covenant breaker. He's a covenant keeper. He's the covenant keeping God. That's why he begins by saying, I am the Lord. I do not change. That's a tremendously important statement. The unchangeableness of God. What theologians call the immutability of God. And it's because God does not change that we're not consumed. Because God is the faithful, covenant keeping, unchanging God. He keeps us in existence. He supports us. He helps us. God is unchangeable. That means he's not capricious. He's not fickle. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't decide, I love you one day. I don't love you the next day. Uh, No, he's a faithful, covenant-keeping God. And he, in his faithful, covenant-keeping work, seeks out his wayward children and calls them back to himself. The general problem that the people had at this time is that they had rebelliously turned away from God. They weren't keeping the statutes, the laws, the commandments of God. So the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. But they didn't get it. They didn't see what he was getting at. They didn't see the one-inch socket on the workbench. So they have this back and forth. He says, return to me. How shall we return? All right, God says, let me get specific. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. How have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. What's he talking about there? Well, the tithe was one of the statutes that God had given them. And the tithe simply means tenth. We get this from Old English. We got an English translation here. And the tithe is just the Old English word for one-tenth. So the idea was that whatever the people had in terms of their produce or whatever they had, they were to give a tenth of that to God. And so these were the laws that were for their good, but what God gets in response is, huh, duh, what are you talking about? What are we supposed to do? Now, if we wanted to distill the conversation, the argument, the back and forth 
down to its real essence, it's this. Not giving equals robbing God. That's what the problem is here. This is God's perspective. Might not be their perspective. I'm sure it wasn't their perspective. They're playing dumb. But God says, not giving equals robbing God. And by the way, that's true today just as much as it was true back then. They had turned away from God and he was calling them to repent, calling them to come back to him by no longer robbing him. When he says return to me, the Hebrew word for return is the basic Hebrew word for repent. You're going in the wrong direction. I'm calling you to turn around and come back to me. And the problem, very concrete problem here, demonstrated where their hearts were at was they were not giving. And God says, that's robbing me. Even worse than that, the text tells us because of this problem, because of this disobedience, they were under a curse. Things were not going well for them. See, when you're under a curse, things don't go well for you. Maybe things aren't going well for you right now. You might want to go back from that situation of things not going well and wonder, am I under a curse? It, it could be. It could be. When you're under a curse, things don't go well. And it is just possible that some of us here, even right now, are under a curse. And we didn't even know it. Now, notice God backs up what he says. He says that he's been keeping track. From the days of your fathers, this has been going on. Now, God gave the laws all the way back at the time of Moses. That's several hundred years before this. There's been hundreds of years that have passed that this has been going on. They had been robbing God, and he had been keeping track. Did you know that God keeps track of your giving? God keeps track of your giving. Imagine it's offering time. Remember when we used to pass the basket? I don't think we do that anymore. COVID stopped that. But we used to pass the basket. Imagine the basket's being passed here and I'm sitting next to you. And I just kind of sidle over real close. And I look over not only to see if you're giving, but even close enough to see the amount on the check. If you still write checks. Do you know what checks are? Anyway, I'm just that close to you that I'm looking over. You'd say, Gee, you're nosy. And you'd be right. But you know, that's what Jesus did. Jesus did exactly that. In Luke chapter 21, Luke tells us that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put all she had to live. All she had to live on. So God keeps track of our giving. Jesus observed, and Jesus commended. He evaluated the giving. Turned out good for the widow. But in the time of Malachi, it wasn't good. The evaluation was, you are robbing me. 
Now, this is remarkable. This is really remarkable. I don't think they would have thought about it like that. Now, if you're going to rob anyone, the very last person you want to rob is God. Because you can't possibly get away with it. You know, it reminds me of, have you ever seen those shows where they show the world's dumbest criminals? Like, I remember one where the, 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 the robber went up to the bank teller and handed her a note saying, give me all your money. Unfortunately, he had his phone number on the slip of paper, and so it made it very convenient for the police to then follow up. These are like dumb criminals. Well, this is what's going on here. To rob God is like the dumbest thing you can possibly do. But in spite of this evaluation that God is giving, it's not meant to hurt them. It's meant to help them. Because the purpose of all of this, the purpose of the prophet speaking to them, the purpose of God getting in this argument is because he wants to bless them. He wants to help them. It's true of the people in Malachi's time and it's true of us today. And that brings us to the solution. The problem is robbing God. The solution, return to me. It's that simple. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. God invites them to return. God invites us to return. That's a gracious promise. He promises that he will return to us if we turn to him. In the New Testament, the book of James, it's put like this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now you've got to do something. But the fact is you can draw near to God because he's already first taken the initiative towards you. And then he reiterates it when he gives us language like this. How do we return to God? We return to him by faith. And faith is demonstrated by obedience. And here the obedience called for is specific. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, why does God command his people to do this? Is he broke? Is he hungry? Is he needy? No. He says the silver is mine. The gold is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. You just sell one cattle. I mean, that, those things are worth a lot of money. He says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all that dwells therein. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. When we give tithes and offerings, we're only acknowledging when we do that, that all that we have comes from God and belongs to God. That all that we have, he owns. And if there is anything that you have that you think you own, it's only because your frame of reference is really way off base. Everything you have, including your very body, belongs to God. He loans it to you, if you will, and you and I act as stewards or managers of what God has entrusted to us. We just manage his resources. And so when God commands us to give, he's actually doing it because he wants to command a blessing for us. It's not like he needs anything. He's not broke. 
Their basic problem was that they'd turned aside from following the Lord. Their hearts were not with him. Their failure to tithe was an example of this. In other parts of Malachi, they were unfaithful in their marriages. They were unfaithful in their worship. They were bringing blemished animals and things like that. They were half-hearted. Their hearts really weren't with him. And so he is giving them concrete ways, calling them back to himself. Because it's not their money that he wants, it's their hearts. But you know, our hearts are pretty closely connected with our money, aren't they? Now, Jesus said this, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Treasure represents time and effort. You go to work, you put in time, you put in effort, what do they give you? Treasure. You don't do it for free. They give you a paycheck, money, treasure. Well, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You put effort you get treasure and your heart and your treasure are very closely connected. So when God says, I want you to give not all that treasure, but just 10% of it, well, we can have a problem with that. A problem really, the heart of the problem really is a problem with our hearts. Well, there's a result that can come here from following the solution. And it's found in the last verses of our text. I'll read them again. God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And by the way, Lord of hosts, that's God's fighting name. Hosts refers to angel armies. So this is God in his power. He says, put me to the test, Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out for you a blessing until there's no more need. And I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let me just make one point here. This business about all the nations. God's plan to glorify himself back then and now is that he demonstrates his reality, his goodness, his love, his mercy, and all of his virtues through his people. Right now, that's the church. And so when God's people are faithful and love him, they glorify him and represent him as ambassadors to the world. The only hope that the world has is seeing Jesus Christ in you and me. We're the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the church. But Jesus is not the hope of the world directly. When he comes back, if they haven't repented, they're going to suffer. Right now, we're the hope of the world. So when we are faithful, when God has our hearts and we're living for him, 
we actually represent him. The people in Malachi's time felt very insignificant. They felt very small. They felt very much like, what can we do? You know, let's face it. We're a little church here today. In our own eyes, we're no big deal. We're just a funny little group of people singing songs to somebody that we can't even see. Must look like idiots in the eyes of the world. But we know through faith that we have a God who is great, who created the heavens and the earth. And for his own reasons, he represents himself through the weakness of a crucified Messiah and through little people like you and me. Yeah, but this, my friends, is the power of God that represents itself, this power, through those that are weak, through those that are humble, not through those that are mighty. Anyway, I just want to mention that, but the promise that's given here in these verses is an outstanding promise. God says, put me to the test and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing greater than you can even receive. I'll bless you and I'll even rebuke the devourer so that pests won't destroy your crops. It was a blessing of wealth that he was promising. And it was as if he's saying, look, I really want to bless you. Just put yourself in a position for me to do so by faithful obedience. And even the surrounding nations will take notice. All right, that was then, but this is now. That was the Old Testament. Is there a New Testament counterpart to this? Well, yeah, there is. One place in particular, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all good works. There's a lot of alls there. God makes gracious promises for those who give. So I want to talk to you for a moment about the concept of the tithe. Uh, as as uh, Albert mentioned, I've been around for a long time. I became a Christian over 50 years ago, 1972, when I was 22 years old. And I had no Christian background. I had no biblical background. Uh, I was brand new, saved in the Jesus movement. And I had no association with any church. Uh, but I went to a prayer meeting and someone there made a strong appeal for the practice of tithing. He said it means giving 10% of what you earn. I thought he was crazy. I thought this is the nuttiest thing I ever heard. At the time, I was a house painter, an unprofitable house painter. And I had just finished a house. My finish was delayed because Hurricane Agnes hit. And by the time I finished painting that house, I got paid $150. It worked out to about maybe 35 cents an hour because it took me that long to finish it because of the weather. But I had $150, and the guy was telling me to give away $15. Now, I was living in Tacoma Park in a small apartment, and I was living from hand to mouth. 
And I thought, this is just crazy. But you know, I was a brand new believer and the whole excitement of faith appealed to me. So I gave away 10%. And I think it was within two days that I got a job offer I could not believe to work for a painting company. And they offered me $4 an hour. Wow, you're kidding. Up until that point, I had never earned more than $2.25 an hour. They were going to pay me almost twice as much. That was just within two days of tithing. By the way, I've been tithing and more than tithing ever since. And now I hap happen to stand before you as a very, very rich, little old, bald-headed man. I have more clothes than I can possibly wear. I have more food than I can possibly eat. I have more books than I can possibly read. I have the best golf clubs I could possibly have. I have two vehicles, one for my wife, one for me. My own vehicle has leather seats. I can't believe how wealthy I am. I'm going to buy pizza for my children and grandchildren after this, and I'm not even worried about how much it costs. Now, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying God has been very faithful. And perhaps compared to most people in the world, I'm not very wealthy. I'll tell you what, I couldn't be more wealthy. I am a wealthy man. God is so very kind to me. But the point I want to make is God opens the windows of heaven. Now, what we read is Old Testament. There was a law about tithing in the Old Testament. There is no law about tithing in the New Testament. And don't let anyone tell you that there is. And even so-called spiritual laws that we somehow work in a mechanistic way. I mean, this is the error of the health and wealth gospel people. They will tell you, and there's an element of truth in this, you sow you will reap. Is that true? Yes, it is. But it's not always apples for apples. They will give you the impression that all you have to do is confess it and you will possess it. If you doubt it, you'll do without it. If you believe it, you'll receive it. And there's all kinds of nice little catchy phrases that you can use. The idea in that is that there are spiritual principles and laws that God has built into his spiritual universe he has put them in there. You just work the levers and you can get what you need. And that leads people to a very crass and often materialistic approach to the Christian faith. And it's actually full of error. Because here's the problem. If you give, will it be given to you? Yes. But not necessarily right away. There is also something in the Christian life called trials. And sufferings. Have you had any of those? Sure you have. Because it doesn't work like... This is, this is, I love this song. Sing, listening to this morning. Have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. He will hear your faintest cry. And he will answer... By and by. See, that's the problem. I don't want an answer by and by. I want an answer here and now. I don't want an answer by and by. I want an answer as soon as I ask. And God said, no, no, it doesn't work that way. Because if it worked that way, you would treat God as your servant, as your bellhop. 
as your genie in a bottle. You just say the magic words and boom, you get what you want. It doesn't work that way. Read the book of Job. In the end, he was tremendously blessed. But boy, there's a little bit in the middle there that didn't look real good. It's how God teaches us something very important. The whole point of this, folks, is not God wants to bless me and give me stuff. No, God wants a relationship with you. That's the purpose of all this. Return to me and I will return to you. God is in the business right now of developing a relationship with you, of teaching you how to trust him. And that happens through sufferings, through trials, through opposition. But the overall point is still true. God wants to bless you. I told you I'm a rich little old man. Most of my life we've lived hand to mouth. We had to count our pennies to buy pizza for the kids. It wasn't always like that. See, when you get old and you're just about to die, that's when you get the Corvette. Right? You don't get it when you're young and handsome. This is the way God wants to develop relationships with you and me. There's a, by the way, there's, there's a whole um, philosophy, a virtue philosophy called eudaimonism. And it's the idea that you do good in order to receive good. And any pagan can do that. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. It's really true. If you are a good person, it's more than likely that people are going to be good to you and good things will happen. Because there is a general truth to sowing and reaping. There is a general truth. But it misses the point entirely of relationship with God, who is the foundation of all goodness and the source of all blessing. This isn't some kind of a system or a gimmick that you can operate yourself so that you can get what you want. But the fact remains, giving is part of our sacrificial service to God. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's, and it's how God provides food in his storehouse. And the storehouse can be compared there to the house of God or, or your place of worship and service. The ministers and the ministries of the church are supported by the free will gifts and offerings of God's people. In our own church, Covenant Life Church, I, I do not know, nor do I want to know, the patterns of giving of the people in our church. But I do know some broad outlines. I know that in our church, about 80% of the people in our church give regularly. And that's actually pretty good. I would say it's probably true here as well. But, but that means there's 20% of the people that are in our church who do not give. I wonder if they're under a curse. Ah, I just give, but I just haven't got enough. I'm just barely getting by. Maybe that's why you don't have enough and you're just barely giving by. Maybe God would like to stretch your faith. Maybe you should put him to the test as he invites you to do. And by the way, that's the only place that I see in Scripture where God invites his people to test him. It's in the area of giving. Give and it shall be given unto you. He wants to encourage us to give, not because he needs it, but because we 
needed. I've had many experiences that I can only say are supernatural in this area of giving. In the very beginning of my Christian walk, when God was leading me to step out in faith and believe that he could support me back in the 70s. Yeah, just one story that comes to mind. I had um, my grandmother in Bridgeport, Connecticut was um, on a limited income and uh, she was, it was poverty. And so I was praying one day and I felt the Lord leading me to send her some money. So I had a $20 bill. And back in these days, $20 was a lot of money. But I remember my mother told me, never send cash through the mail. So I was really careful. I wrapped it in a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, business size paper and put it in an envelope. And I addressed it and, you know, sent it to my grandma. I actually took it out to the mail. But as I was taking it out to the mail, the mailman actually came to the house. And I still can find this hard to believe. But... I received a business-sized envelope addressed to me with no return address. I opened the envelope, and in it was a $20 bill. Now, I had just been reading the scripture that says, He who gives to the poor lends to the Lord, and that which he hath given him will he pay him again. I said, I can't believe this. I'm giving my grandmother $20, and even before I put it in the post, I get $20. I had things like that happen because God wanted to teach me that he could provide for me. If you're a young person here, I want to challenge you. Be a giver. You cannot outgive God. I mean, it's really an exciting walk of faith. Now, things don't seem to happen on that level to me right now. Maybe it's because I learned that lesson and things just maybe got a little bit more mundane. But spiritually speaking, the same principles hold true. God does want to bless us, and it does require faith and obedience. God wants to bless this church. And if you're a member of this church, you should feel an obligation to give. Should it be a tithe? Again, that's an Old Testament law. I think it's a wonderful principle, and I think it's personally a good starting point, but nobody can require that of you. What God requires is that we be cheerful givers. And so giving should characterize our lives in all areas, but especially if you're a part of this church, you should be giving for the support of this church. Remember, Jesus is nosy. He takes notice of your giving. But his nosiness is for the purpose of encouraging you and commending you. You may start with two small copper coins. No problem. The Lord watches and the Lord commends. So, some questions for you. If God's evaluating your giving, what does he see when he looks at you? Our giving is a reflection of our relationship with him. Does your giving show that you trust him or that you think, "Eh, I don't think God can really do that? Think again, my friend. He can and he will. But remember, he wants a relationship with you. Finally, God is unchangeable, and that is why we are not consumed. He is merciful. He's gracious. He's forgiving. But he will by no means clear the guilty. 
He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When we talk about the mercy of God, it doesn't mean that he is a God who does not judge and will not punish. Ultimately, he will. And that brings us to the most important point and something that we've talked about in our worship today. Each and every one of us needs a Savior. Each and every one of us is a sinner. And if God had not taken the step of sending His Son, who died on a bloody cross for your forgiveness and mine, if God had not taken that first step, we would be without hope. 